This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, a philosophical wonderer who today is wondering about improv. And I am Bill Arnett, an improv practitioner with lingering, not going to say doubts, thoughts about philosophy. And together, we, we are, are <laughs> Philosophy versus, versus Improv. improv. And today we have different rules, different, a different thing. Changing it up today. In that each of us has come in, not with a lesson in mind, but with a lesson to ask about. Yes. This has been a wonderful experience. I've very much enjoyed all of our guests and all of our time with Mark. But I think just as you, there may be things that you are lingering, lingering questions. So perhaps we should just, yeah, I mean, we did reveal each other. Or ideas ever so quickly. So especially for the philosophy, I want, to, I want Mark to be able to prepare a little bit. We usually start with the philosophy. So let's start with the improv lesson and maybe yes. that will guide how we treat the philosophy lesson, which the one that I just Interesting. today. Okay. When I was thinking, trying to think, there's lots of things I need practice in, mm -hmm. but fundamentally the question I have about our whole dynamic, about this show, about doing improv is how to change things up, how to keep from falling into patterns, how to remain sure. unpredictable with the idea that that makes it more fun. Yes, I think that is something that improv is one of its strong suits. One of its unique things is that it is, hopefully, unpredictable and original and fresh and different. And the discoveries that the audience makes listening are identical to the discoveries that the players are making. And the, boy, isn't that fun when that can happen? In theory. In the, well, I think it's true in <laughs> practice. I, I mean, why, why watch it otherwise? What does improv have over really funny sketch comedy? I mean, when I think of what I choose to watch on TV or whatever, I think there's a reason. I don't want to bash improv here. Obviously, I'm signed up for it. I'm doing season two. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited about the prospect. I like doing it perhaps yes. more than watching it, but I do appreciate yes. scenes that we kind of do involve improvising. Like I do find that generally more exciting that should indicate that i like reality tv but it, it certainly doesn't <laughs> how is this for a thesis if people enjoy doing something then there exists someone who will enjoy watching them do it there are probably a porn niche for every <laughs> every possible yes kink. one of the rules of the internet for every topic <laughs> there is someone watching it for sexual gratification that's a little broader than i was putting it i wasn't thinking that people were listening to this podcast for sexual gratification i hope well i, I mean i'm flattered. whatever interests you you know yeah indeed indeed breaking patterns yes creativity always involves a moment of creation sure so the question is do you require your moments of creation to be vetted to be controlled so that the bad ideas get thrown out before they have a chance to breathe any of our valuable air? Or is it more exciting to you just to have that raw creativity right out there? In which case, you should be interested in all sorts of things. Like, don't just read a book. Watch a Twitch stream of a writer writing a book, which would only work with certain writers who write very fast. <laughs> is that a thing? Has, has anyone... I don't know. I have never looked up such a thing. I would kind of hope not. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it just has something to do with that form of address. You might as well just be doing uh, extemporaneous speech or I'm sure there are improv storytelling podcasts. Are you positive. aware of like, yeah, improv storytelling festivals or anything like that? There's certainly podcasts that are just people talking 
and improvising if we consider that improvising. I know we had talked about one time about Nathan Fielder. Yep. And the rehearsal. Have you seen the rehearsal? I still have not gotten to that, but I've been finishing up his previous show. I think you will enjoy it. I came away thinking we were just given a glimpse into the autistic mind. Interesting. Interesting. There's definitely, uh, for <laughs> folks who, who are not familiar with these properties, at least his previous show, Nathan, for you, he would think of a situation. So specifically in that show, it was helping businesses. So he would come up with a wacky idea. And I'm sure what we are seeing is not the improvised conception of the idea. A lot of thought goes into those, yeah. wandering about, trying to come up with the wackiest. How can I sell chili out of a giant suit? You pour chili in a suit and then somebody has to manufacture that suit. And engineering, and it's a difficult, you know, and part of the joy is to see the problem solving that <laughs> and how things expand. Yes. Well, you're in for a ride. And I think getting into this whole notion of where creativity exists, I've heard creativity described as a novel association. And the idea is it's two things that we don't associate together that are now immediately associated together. And that I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And certainly in many of the improv scenes we have done, I think back to turkeys talking about getting their heads chopped off many, many moons ago, a scene we did a very, very long time ago. And again, we don't normally associate turkeys with talking, but in that scene, we did. The other side of that coin is, do we just go around looking at two items and slam them together and presume that's creativity? And I don't think that's necessarily true either, that there is a moment of discovery when you discover that two separate things are actually have a similar character. And I think that process is more involved than simply saying, hey, uh, paperclip uh, remote control. It's a remote control that you paperclip onto your shirt. Boom. I was just creative. It's like, well, that's, I mean, congratulations. But there was no joy in, in that process and no joy in us watching you grab two random things from, from your counter and slam them together. Though, however, I'm thinking of various stories mm -hmm. involving a sort of religious worldwide effort, a mm -hmm. jihad, if you will, to <laughs> rid the world of any other type of remotes except ones that are made out of paper clips. That there's something very elemental about the paper clip, and you could make an argument that specifically I would think a remote control paper clip would be just you attach many paper clips together so you could reach the buttons on the TV. There we go. Okay. Now we're being create now now that we're having some creativity. And I think part of that is finding the human element and all those things. To your question, Mark, about being repetitive or finding yourself in the same place a lot, I think I might know what that place is. I'm not going to say it. But part of your question is a recognition that something is similar, correct? Or a fear that things are flat or the same or repetitious. You know, like many fears, it is not necessarily a fear of an imminent thing. Sure. One can have a fear of spiders without a spider being right in front of you. Certainly. So I'm not condemning <laughs> our work or anything and saying, oh, it's just all the episodes are the same. Yes. But there are patterns that I fall into, that our scenes fall into that, you know, and I, and I recognize, of course, we're building skills here. Yes. So mastering the frustration scene, for instance, that seems like deserving of as many attempts at it as we see fit. However, I would not like all of them to be frustration sure. scenes. I would not like to think that the frustration scene is the foundation of all comedy. It is certainly not. The other thing is that many times our scenes end up playing to the service of a philosophical point. And sometimes that pushing in or, or mm -hmm. inserting of something ends up 
maybe taking up more of our brain or forcing certain choices that we might make different choices in a different circumstance. So there's that. Let's dive in and do this. I am definitely, you know me, I'm very utilitarian. So we can discuss theoretically how we break patterns or we can dive in and break some patterns. Well, I'm wondering to break the pattern. Usually we talk a little and then we have a, a scene. Yep. Should we not maybe talk more and get your concern, <laughs> okay, initial you know concern out? Right, th- now we have a frustration we, game. We've, we've taken turns. We're not supposed to take turns. I guess we broke the pattern, <laughs> but I guess we have kind of fallen into a pattern of actually taking turns despite. There are certain turns that we take that I like, perhaps our hearts beating or respirating. I'm very cool with that continuing for as long as possible. I mean, I hope that we don't take turns so that, you know, like we're sharing a, an oxygen mask. We're undersea or we're in space and someone's breather has gone and we have to pass the breather back and forth. We're not taking turns in that way. Our hearts beating are not taking turns. They are beating, if not simultaneously, if not in perfect synchronization, at least simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I'm, yes. Fair enough. So what does that mean? Does that mean we're doing an improv scene right now or are, I, we, changing, I, are we jumping over to philosophy momentarily? At least let's get the idea on the table. Get the question on the table yes. that you had so okay. that perhaps, oh boy. or perhaps not, it can infect the improv. Oh boy. Okay. My question is this. So often when philosophy comes up, the layman's brain and maybe even the philosopher's brain goes straight to, as I have called, the ancients, the old masters, the Plato's, the Confucius's, you know, maybe up into the enlightenment thinkers. Throw out a name, your Humes, your, and everybody in between. What's considered cutting edge philosophy? You know, I feel like we've learned about how to build wooden bridges and stone bridges. And it's like, well, when are we going to get to steel and cool bridges and suspension bridges? You know, what is the current cutting edge philosophy? All right. Now we can do a scene. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Here is my challenge. To get that out there, perhaps the answer will emerge. Oh, boy. The definitive answer, perhaps what we're doing right now. Again. We're exemplifying. One of the patterns I acknowledged is injecting philosophy into things. So what I would do for any improviser out there looking to break a pattern, one thing is to start a scene by putting yourself in the situation that is not the pattern that you're used to. I have two things to think about. And that's something I've actually done a little bit with some of our little challenges that we've had throughout this time starting with a question, starting with the answer to a question that no one heard. All all these things that are essentially, if you're someone who is a thinker, that are keeping you from thinking. Whatever the first person says, cut them off and finish their thought, and they're right. You know, Whatever it is that they say, just anything to introduce some chaos and absurdity if your problem is there isn't enough chaos and absurdity. So that would be one thing, is to start off somewhere. And I think you mentioned frustration scenes. I think if we're going to start off with the opposite of frustration scene, we need to start with some with energy rather than against energy. Does that make sense? That makes sense. All right. Would you particularly like to start this thing? Would you like me to start it? I just thought of a thing that we've never done before. Hey, I want to uh, welcome my guest, uh, Bill, to uh, this, our Star Wars podcast. I've been doing this Star Wars podcast for, for seven years now, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Nobody was doing Star Wars podcasts. Now there's a lot of them and I'm often overlooked. But now with my guest, Bill here, we're going to hit the big time. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I would be remiss if I didn't say I'm a big Star Wars fan. I'm a real big Star Wars fan. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why you're invited here. Great. I heard you had a little run in with one of the cast members 
from a Star Wars film. Do you want to- I don't want to name names. I don't want to be a name dropper or look at me. However, do you remember in episode four when Darth Vader is choking one of the admirals, one of the generals in the meeting room? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Two Darth Vaders left three seats over is a man in a black imperial uniform hitherto unnamed until a book came out in 1989 naming him as general clavin well guess who was in starbucks <laughs> all right in east hollywood behind general clavin i whoa. was whoa they, they put his name did they put clavin on the cup and call him up with that. Brad, Brad Tomlinson is what it was just to call him Brad. I, I, I happen to know him. He, he actually was uncredited in the original, but when they went back and, and Lucas fixed the original, they added him in. And he really dodged a bullet because, you know, on the special edition, some of those guys got pasted over. Totally. Uh, they, but not they, this guy. The, you know, the special, special edition I'm talking about where, uh, he was reacting to the fact that like it was just too white. And mm-hmm, so like, mm-hmm. They've just pasted over and, and like made an ethnically diverse empire. Because if you want to have an evil empire, you need to make sure that all of the different types of people are represented as being part of evil. Evil exists everywhere. And I asked him, I said, Brad, what was it like being on set, right? With those heavy hitters, you know, with Grand Moff Tarkin, you know, and with David Proust, the actor who portrayed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Darth Vader. And he's like, well, at the time, I, I wasn't really, I didn't know David Travis for that. He hadn't done a lot, but it was still kind of cool. And I didn't know the movie was going to be what it was. So what was it like? What was it like seeing Darth Vader choke somebody? And he's like, it was amazing when I got around to seeing the movie. I was not invited to the premiere, but when I got around to seeing the movie, it was amazing because that was all done with, with cut-ins. There was no wide shot of that choking happening, which, fantastic bit of trivia. There is no wide shot of that choking happening. Well, how did they do the effect? Of the choking. This is, well, this is amazing. The actor pretended to be choking and he grasped at his throat and his collar as he's pulling on his, pulling on his uniform. He wasn't really being choking. That is so old school just to pretend. I mean, no CGI. Yeah. Early films where like, you know, they didn't even have the visible lasers. You just point the gun at them and you'd yell bang and they fall over. I mean, those were the days, the golden days of cinema that George Lucas really admired all those Japanese samurai movies that he was trying to imitate where they wouldn't even have swords. They just wave their hands around and you know, the people would fall down when you don't have a sword and just going to wave your hands around that. That's, that's a whole different thing. Look, (laughs) star Wars fans are anything if not detail oriented. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be where the untoward here. I'm a guest. I'll be a nice guest. But if I do see an error, I will point it out as any good Star Wars fan, any error, no matter how trivial will not go unacknowledged. So when they talk about like pushers, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. drug pushers, pushers, I guess I always assumed that there was a tool involved, but they just didn't have the tool yet. So that using your hands to push Mm -hmm. do you see what i'm getting at like i thought that this karate thing was just people with swords but they didn't have the swords Mm -hmm. because they were going to add those in post and so these pushers is that a thing okay here's an interesting fact in return of the jedi there is a scene of mark hamill and david proust 
aka Darth Vader, in a tunnel at the Imperial base on Endor. They are walking and talking. And in cinema lingo, that is called a pull. When you stand in front of somebody and the camera pulls the actors along with them, well, I know this because one of the stormtroopers in the hallway happens to be a member of our recreation society. And let me just say, this guy is a font, an absolute fountain of information. And so was the pull with like a cane? A, a, a camera. A well, you have the camera on a dolly, on a, on a rolling track, and you actually have stagehands pulling the camera, believe it or not. And they pull it with ropes or something. Uh, or handles. You know, uh, I'll ask them. We've, we've got a meeting next week at our recreation society. I'll, I'll ask them. Because sometimes it seems like they should be using ropes, but then mm-hmm. the ropes aren't added in until post. And so they're using their, their hands, but their hands aren't even touching it. And so it just That moves. would be difficult to do. That would be difficult to actually pull the camera without real ropes and then put them in and post. You need to do something to actually, unless you had very thin threads that didn't show up on camera. Maybe you used like green screen, green ropes. And then in post, you go put the ropes back in, but the camera's not even pointing at those people. It's actually turned around, not showing the stage hands, but showing the actors. Pretty much all my knowledge of cinema comes from the way George Lucas would shoot things. And as far as I know, none of his actors have ever met each other. It's all in post. And if there's any sort of touching, you Mm -hmm. know, like when Anakin and Padme are are having their romantic scene, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe they weren't even in the same state. And so that whole touching thing, in fact, the hands, you know, and part wow. of the time he's got a mechanical hand, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, that could be anybody. In, they got a robot hand. That could, be any, it could be anybody. That's a wonderful fun fact. I, I do know as the movies went along, more and more prospection was used. I'm going to need a citation on that, but that's, that's fascinating. Well, and I understand that that even was behind the scenes. So like the cameramen, the camera operators were not even there. Like it was remote control. Wow. And then that's the camera operators I would, I were added put it past, in post. I wouldn't put it past ILM. I wouldn't. That seems reasonable. And you would think that a, a camera operator to operate a camera would have to hold that camera, would have to touch it. Uh-huh. But even that, they just did that in post. All sorts of contact. The way that George Lucas likes things, the way that I like things is that each of us sits alone in our basement and we talk into a microphone and then things happen. And then, you know, the world creations occur. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that in post, that's the magic. That's the magic. Industrial light and magic. Okay. And I think that's the magic. All right. I think we've blown it open. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Wonderful being here. Kind of plug. I actually have my own star Wars podcast. Oh yeah, of course. It's called pod wars, a star Wars podcast. And we are currently moving through all of the properties starting with, uh, from release date. We are currently in episode four, season two of Clone Wars, and we spend about three or four podcasts each about two hours on each episode. So we still got a ways to go. We've been at it for several years now, and I would love everyone just to go over there. And we're just going to do a shot for a shot breakdown. I've only been doing this show for about three weeks. This is only my third episode but I've, I'm going to add those several years to catch up with you in post. Look, Star Wars podcasts are a bit like oxygen, barbecue, and sex. You never get enough. You never get enough. I've never had two Thanks out for, of three huh? of those things. Hmm? Uh, I've never had two out of three of those things. 
All right, let's, let's okay. be done with this. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, Mark. All right, well, that was not a pattern. No. I mean, I, I was playing a dumb character, so that's a pattern, but, it, you know. And how did I react to your dumbness? You were very uh, charitable. Yeah. Just like on the regular show. <laughs> Just like on our real show. Yeah. And again, that's, that's a way if we want to avoid a frustration scene, don't get frustrated. But then the other part of that is I can't just wish to not be here and not get frustrated. If I don't want to be somewhere and someone is pushing your buttons, Mm -hmm. you get frustrated. So it goes back once. It isn't just don't be frustrated. I can only roll my eyes so much if you keep asking dumb questions till it becomes unreal. So in order for it to me to not get frustrated for a long length of time, I have to change my opinion of how I feel about being. And I love being here. And if I do push back, it's going to be pushing back. Like I mentioned, I'm going to need some, I'm going to need a citation on that one. It's with a laugh and a smile and boy, I sure hope it is true, but my character might need some information about it. But the rules of life apply in these rules of improv scenes. So if I'm not going to be frustrated and the scene's going to be longer than (laughs) 30 seconds, then I need to play with energy. I am with you. I want to be here. I'm cool with what's going on. Even if you have a disagreement, it's minor and it's with a smile. Does that make sense? Yes. And I thought about injecting an answer to your, your philosophy question in there. Sure. I, uh, I detected. I, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> I didn't try. Okay. But some of it got in there anyway. That's where uh, we want to be. That's where exactly here, where we want to be. Here's a transition. I, have I told you about Bergson, Henri Bergson's theory of humor? It's one of the, the famous theories of humor. Does this sound familiar to this name drop? I've, I've heard the name Henri Bergson. I think it's in a Monty Python sketch. So he's mm. at least as old as the 1960s. He's turn of the previous century. Turn of the previous century. Okay. And his theory of humor, tremendously influential, was that things are funny when the human form becomes mechanical somehow when we get stuck in a rut. Okay. When we're in a pattern, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody stutters, when they fall down, you know, it's as if the machine is breaking down. There's something about the uncanniness of the human. Sure. As to a direct answer to your question, what's the cutting edge in philosophy? Well, it's too broken up an enterprise to have a <laughs> cutting edge. There's plenty of concern still with the perennial questions. And dividing philosophy from the history of philosophy, from educational philosophy, like that's what most philosophers are doing. However, there are plenty that are writing paper. I guess the second answer is I don't know because I'm not actually employed at a university currently and I don't follow that much. But I do know some things. I see articles coming up. Yeah, I've interviewed people that have just had books coming out and things like that. And so, of course, they're writing about a lot of things. A lot of it is conceptual clarification. So, for instance, I just had a a gentleman on Pretty Much Pop who had written a philosophy book about cover songs. Anytime you can classify, clarify, categorize, so the different types of cover songs, the different motivations that you would have for creating a cover songs, and, and hence the different ways. Philosophy of language is a big thing that came up in the 1940s on, you know, really back to the same turn of the previous century, this ordinary language philosophy came very much in vogue starting the 50s or so. And that is something that is very much alive and well in terms of how do we get machines, Mm -hmm. right? One way to tell, I probably said this to you before, whether we really understand what we mean by things is to try to 
program a computer to have the same understanding that we do to yeah. learn in a human like way. And then we might understand stuff about psychology, but also about the logical operations themselves, because it's not necessary exactly that if you want to teach your computer face recognition that they do it in the same way humans do. In fact, maybe the way humans do is very inefficient, but there might be some stages of processing that we can at least break down. If you're trying to come up with a computer program, then you got to basically make a flow chart. You got to figure out what the operations and what order they go in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in understanding a story, for instance, what kind of background knowledge, you can't just type in the words You can't give an explicit definition for every word because it's all circular. The words all relate to each other. (laughs) Like it would end up understanding nothing. I have read the book, was it Most Human Human? Essentially about the Turing test and and people trying to beat the Turing test and the different strategies that go into that. It's interesting. It's fairly fascinating. The attempts at it and how how people have done it. You mentioned linguistics in the earlier part of this century. Would Noam Chomsky, would that be? So yes, in his early years, he was at the foremost of the idea that when humans learn language, it's not that we are a tabula rasa, that we're just an empty brain in which, but that we have specific modules that enable us to very readily learn languages. And it sort of just depends which languages we hear. And that's why it doesn't matter, you know, if you try to teach a a dog or whatever (laughs) language in the same way, they just don't have those modules. So exploring that, Mm -hmm. Yes, that is one of the one of the psychological components of this. So it seems now that I've explicitly laid that out, then <laughs> perhaps there is room for another scene that does explicitly try to do something with this not understanding yes. thing that I just slip into as a pattern, but we're going to do it on purpose. Yes, perhaps. And I will say this, maybe it should be my job to do that. I think so. If we're really trying to break patterns here. And just to kind of summarize what you said, you would say that the age of the philosopher who knows everything about everything is gone. The age of the, well, you know, Aristotle had something to say about everything. Benjamin Franklin had to, he, he had a whole life philosophy that affected religion, science, and it all, the notion of that all-encompassing philosophy isn't really alive and kicking, and that philosophers are now much more compartmentalized have they lost the dream of a unified philosophy or have they realized that their unified philosophy is kind of a childish pursuit and that it's so fluid and so impossible and intangible that it's just not worth pursuing? There are still some systematic philosophers. Okay. Systematic. Okay. But it is the exception rather than the rule. And certainly the expertise, as you say, of any given philosopher is going to be much narrower. Are, are there the any s- interesting folks, systematic philosophers who actually have some traction or are they all kind of on the uh, fringes? No, so like Alain Badiou okay. is, a, is a French guy who's still alive that we covered partial examined life recently. And he okay. seems to have a very deep knowledge of a, a lot of kinds of philosophy. And he is not afraid to take on <laughs> any big topic. questions. Yes. Yes. So that he'll write in political matters, but he'll also write on what he considers metaphysical or logical matters. And some people think it's nonsense, you know, because he's not (laughs) using the same language because he includes, it could be that what defines a philosopher is more what they exclude, what they're putting themselves in opposition to. 
okay. than anything else. So your classic analytic philosopher is going to be, talk to me in short sentences that everybody can understand. And you know that's the point of conceptual clarification. You keep doing that for a while, you might think, but we need complicated logical apparati, apparatus to actually truly clarify anything. And so that it's no longer clear sentences that everybody can understand, but those are not fundamentally opposed tendencies. It is just a matter of how far you take it. There we go. Okay, uh, fair enough. A favorite philosopher that I recommend to people, Thomas Nagel, his big stuff was maybe in the 80s, 90s. And his famous paper, What It Was Like to Be a Bat, was 73, I believe. So he's still alive. The stuff that I've read by him are very much, let's just take a phenomenon and write an essay about it and everybody will understand. And wow, you really made some good sense of that. Whereas other folks really like everything they write is one little chapter in their giant book of the universe. Fair enough. I think Baidu being one of those that if you read one essay by him, you don't really know where he's coming from. You don't really, it might still be unclear, even though you might get some clear insight out of that one little bit. Perfect. There's something that happens in improv, especially as you start doing longer and longer pieces where you start wanting to have threads and themes and have things be connected. And I think it's a very human thing to want to have things to be connected. And it's actually difficult to get improvisers to not be connected or to delay or forestall connections. And that's something we have never done anything like a multi-scenic show where Mm -hmm. you and I are in multiple scenes that all exist in the same show in the same universe. That is something that the big improv theaters could do and would do. And it's difficult to get people to not leap at the first connection they see at the first thing that they see that builds this thing as a whole. Oh, in the second scene, that guy is actually the brother of the guy from the first scene. You know, those kinds of connections are, are when people see them or just get a, just a hint, a whiff of that connection. They want to make it. They want to call it out. And it's hard to get people to forestall that. Not sure if that's apropos, but I think, I think it's, you know, talking about systemic versus just topic based. Mm-hmm. Coin that right now into this improv scene. Here's the second thing. So the first thing was put yourself in a situation right off the bat that you think goes against that pattern that you've been falling into. If we're getting into frustration scenes, especially if I'm the frustrated person, I'm going to play general agreement. That's exactly what I did. Whatever you have to say, I'm ready to do that. My character likes what's going on. So this next one's going to be for you, Mark. And this is to devise a different mindset from which you are improvising from. So normally you are Mark with all your assumptions about the world and all your assumptions about improv and humor and how that works, pretending to be the host of a Star Wars podcast. I want to put a layer between those, between yourself and the character you are portraying. And I want to keep it as archetypical as possible and as very broad as possible. So everything is going to be through that filter. Can we give it a shot? Mm, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Now, one thing to think about is what are the patterns we're trying to break or the things that we're trying to undo or the things we, we want to do something different. So, I'm going to give you a character. Would you like me to give it to you audibly or would you like me to do it in secret? And then we'll tell the audience later what you were trying to do. I kind of want to tell you. I kind of want to tell you now. All right. Tell me. All right. Well, the person between Mark and your character is this person. You are a single dad who got kids in high school. You've had children. You probably understand this or kind of get this point of view, this mindset. And you really enjoy doing improv, but you really, really want something that's artistic and beautiful in your life because the rest of it is so harried. Does that make sense? So you're not in it to be funny. You're not in it to be 
clever or cute. You're in it to have a chance to let go of the world, you know, and you signed up for this class down at the theater and you're, you're the oldest person there by a decade. But, but, but dang it, this is what you want to do. And it's freeing. It is a moment to let go and enjoy. Does that make sense? Uh, sure, Mr. Arnett. What's the next exercise there? We're just going to do a, we're going to do a scene. Let's do it. Mark two. We're going to do a scene. You got it. Mark two. Is that my name? Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to think of like the, the delineate this interstitial person. <laughs> I like Mark two. All right. So again, Mark two wants to have fun, enjoy himself and kick back and relax and have fun. But he wants it to be beautiful and not silly. And I guess his life is hard. Awesome. Well, I just got back from, uh, from that meeting with the principal and test scores are terrible. Test scores are terrible. Uh, and, uh, heads might roll. You didn't hear it from me. Here in the break room, heads might roll. Have you thought about what we can do to fix the situation? Well, just teach better. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I just, you know, we've got another round of standardized testing coming up in, uh, at the end of the school year. And we just got to get these kids. I know we shouldn't teach to the test, but that might be what we have to do. Children are so important. Yeah, yeah. And I can't sacrifice the wisdom that I'm trying to impart to them to teach to a test. Oh, yeah, I, I know, I know, they're, I know. They're I'm, so precious. Look, I'm not saying change what you're doing, changing it. I'm just saying make sure they understand that they need to take the test seriously and not Isn't just, there too much seriousness in the world of children as it is they're forced to become adults before their time? We need to nurture and cherish yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And pedestalize. And get them to pass the big test at the end of the year. The state test, you know? What does it really matter if they pass the test or not? Well, if ma- they learn on the inside. Jerry, you understand how this works, right? If our school doesn't, get, doesn't score well on the state standardized tests, we lose funding. And then where are the kids? Then where are the kids if we lose funding, you know? The world is, is cruel. Yeah, it sure is. We're here. We have nothing but good intentions. The children are bright and eager to learn. Most of my children yeah. in my classes are very well behaved. They're very attentive. Yeah. But sometimes it's like the test is, is coming from a place of darkness, a place, a monolith, the society, the future, the adult world reaching in and grabbing their little hearts and squeezing them and pinching them and they don't deserve that. They deserve a place where they can be free. Can, can I? Can I speak? Of course. Can, can I speak? Uh, well, not to the poetry teacher, but to the guy who wants to keep his job. <laughs> Is that guy in there? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm nervous. Okay, I'm real nervous. All right, I teach shop. That's that's gone. Let's just say that. I'm, I'm already dancing on it on a knife edge here. That keeping shop class is already okay. <laughs> they have asked me to take over. Some of the shop classes. I'm already doing PE in addition to poetry. And I think that makes perfect sense because I think things should be taught in a more poetic way. You know, the the old PE teacher, push-ups, dodgeball, volleyball. Now I teach them that their body is a temple. Well, and so we build up that temple. Where's coach? We worship at that temple. Where's coach Guthrie now? You seen coach Guthrie around? You know where he is? I think he works at the, the Quiggy Mart. Is the late, the late shift at the convenience store. All right. Yeah. Is your teaching kids to be poetic in gym worth getting Jim Guthrie canned? Okay. It's just poetry is everywhere. And so it only makes sense that the poetry teacher and my ways of teaching should expand 
to all the the courses. Okay. All right. So if I lose this job with its standardized test, I will start my own charter school, my own private school. It might not be accredited, but I believe that I can provide a safe, beautiful place for the children to come. And if we need funding, I know some men who would like to watch these children learn. They will stand on one side of the glass and they'll watch the children. The children... That's creepy. Flourishing. That, that is creepy. I'm going to say that right now. You know some men who will watch children learn through a glass. Your your mind is, you know, I'm talking about... You said it. An elevated... Just Have you never just stood agape before a child learning how their mind is so open, how they have such innocence? You and I cannot compete with that. I just... I spent a good 15 minutes each of my classes just staring at them agape with wonder at their preciousness. Okay, look, never mind. Never mind. It's it's cool. I'm going to talk to the other teachers and so we're just going to kind of rally the troops here and uh how about this? All I ask is could you send the message once a week from now until the end of the year. That's only about 8 weeks. Hey everybody, we got standardized tests coming up. Do your best. I will I, I will teach do your them best. Do your best. To, don't to, don't blow it off. Do your best. Rip the tests apart to stand on their <laughs> desks. On. Okay. To raise their hands. All right. Okay. In solidarity as a classroom against the oppressive system. <laughs> and and then as long as you're okay with them saying, who told them to say that? I am okay with that. I mean, you're the one technically no, well, no, in no. charge. I mean, you're the assistant principal. So really, I know the buck. What I, how I represent the school uh, does reflect on you. So. I'm just saying you might as well just get on board and, and be with it. Join this. Uh, yeah. Well, this rebellion. And then you can, you can work as a, in a small part. Never mind. Shop class. Never, never mind. In my never charter mind. school. Never mind. I don't want to speak to the math department. They usually don't need much coaxing to teach. I mean, they already teach to the test anyway. I mean, come on. When the math, I mean, book they, te- the math book teaches class, they just tell you what page it turned to. I right? had a, a conversation with, with uh, Mrs. Pennyworth and, I taught her about, we were talking about the empty set and she really left in deep meditation, contemplation of, of the void. So I think you'll find more of uh, the faculty is coming from my point of view. At this I think point. she just wanted to leave the conversation and just, she's on a spectrum. So she's always somewhere else. Let's just say that right now. No offense, but she's always a little bit somewhere else. All right. Uh, I'm going to leave now. Let me just get behind you. Grab a coffee behind you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. I've, uh, yay. We did it. We did it, Mark. How was that? How do you think that was? <laughs> you, I, that was, I've never seen, never heard that voice. I've never seen that face. I was trying to be idealistic. And so that just translated into the character being idealistic sure. rather than the improviser being idealistic. <laughs> and then my normal brain rather kicked in with that. So I didn't really know how to construct that to create a beautiful thing as opposed to someone merely talking about how beautiful some things are. That's how I interpreted your direct. Well, it's the first time we've done it, Mark. It's a long journey. It's a long, long way to go. You're always going to be yourself. Sometimes people are worried if they break a pattern, they'll quit being who they are and realize like, well, I can't turn off your brain. I can't turn off what you think is funny. I don't, I don't want to either. I want to just change the packaging, change the wrapper have it come across in a different, fun, unique way. Your voice was different. Your rate of speech was very different. 
And those were all the modulations I saw were, were more on the acting side than the content side. Although there was a little bit of different content, especially up top. As it went along, you kind of slid back into Mark 1. But we need to give the audience something different to look at, something different to hear. And you went a long way in doing that. It didn't feel put on. It didn't feel fakey. I enjoyed it, especially the first three quarters. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I was just trying to think of some, what, what the logical conclusion, how to, how to wrap it up. I mean, I, you wrapped it up. I didn't have a punchline. I didn't, you know, other than y- yes. uh, yes. the character has ascended spiritually uh, you know, out of the top of the ceiling. That's kind of the... <laughs> well, of course, Mark 1 would always have a punchline. Mark 2 doesn't have a punchline. Mark 2 is just there to, just to have fun and shake it. Would, would love the scene to go on forever. As would the audience. <laughs> I was feeling like maybe there that should end at some point. Yes. I, I was getting yes. a little impatient with it toward the, toward the end of that. So were you injecting anything about the AI learning thing into there? I detected none of that, but there was one point where I thought I did or was trying to, but it didn't really, it didn't really come up. I was trying, trying to get you to think about other people. That was me recognizing the ultimate mm. selfishness in your point of view and lack of empathy cloaked in I'm doing this for the children. Which is, I mean, that's the most dangerous kind there is, isn't it? I mean, that's a, you know, cult leader territory. Yes. Their, yes. their selfishness is completely clothed in selflessness. Sometimes that cloak is very thin and easy to see through. Other times it's oddly impenetrable and may even capture many of our attentions. Well, and you may have seen news stories recently, in addition to the concern with AI being how to actually build AI. Sure. What I was talking about before. The more recent concern with AI is what kind of thing will it be and how do we keep it from killing us? You know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a lot of philosophers, of course, are dealing with things of the moment, trying to understand misinformation, trying sure. to understand the cultish behavior, trying to make sense that, you know, there were a lot of philosophers around after World War II writing about the futility. Why, how did the Nazis rise? Like, what, how can we prevent that kind of stuff from? happening again and so we're likewise seeing like why do we have trumpiness why do we have this pattern of i want to say scientific method but the epistemic habits of QAnon supporters sure how sure, sure, sure. you know they're not merely falling for everything in fact some of it i think we might have said before is being hyper skeptical about the wrong things yeah, and yeah. so when you're thinking about all this can be related to i should say this concern with AI, and if we're dealing with something that does not have all the years of human evolution built into it to build its brain, and yet we've made it sophisticated enough, so whether or not it actually has consciousness, I mean, that's another philosophical problem, very important, very current still, Mm -hmm. but artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily mean, and in fact, maybe that's part of what's wrong with it, you know, if you think, even if it passes the Turing test, it is still not alive in the relevant sense and maybe being alive in the relevant sense would contribute to it having ethical norms being subject to ethical norms so how do we program it to value the right thing well yeah how do you you make a make an ai and it's totally racist it's like oh come on really (laughs) right the ones that just (laughs) merely read the internet and try to respond to pass the turing test well i I mean chat session who was alan Alan turing a big nerd we're gonna take his definition of what a you know (laughs) Come on, if this computer can trick me into thinking he's talking to a human, low bar, low bar, Alan. Well, but that's interesting that, you know, and I, 
I haven't actually like seen the touring movie or, you know, read a lot about touring. I've, I've heard this and that about his life, but do you know if he was on the spectrum, for instance? Most likely. They didn't have a spectrum back then, but I mean, come on. No one is that brilliant with the math and the things that he was without being somewhere. By defining intelligence as convincing the average person over, you know, a chat or something like that, that you are, are human, he might fail at himself. Like if you <laughs> yeah, weren't, <yeah. laughs> depending on what exactly your criterion are, if, if it's really just like, do you understand basic words? Can you put a sentence together? I might have used this example before, but this sort of background, my philosophy of mind teacher, I remember related this anecdote where he was telling his kid something about a doctor and, you know, and then the kid asked like, is the doctor a dog? Because there was some book that they had yeah, read, yeah, yeah. you know, Richard Scarry or whatever, yeah, where yeah, the doctor yeah. was a dog. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that you'd want to make sure your AI computer your AI gets right. <laughs> Does not ask questions like that. Yeah. Although interesting, this was the human child that was asking it for a reason, but that sort of goes in line with the, why would the AI who learns from the internet become racist? Well, they're just at least until they really understand whether it's a child or an AI, mm-hmm. whatever, the, what do you, you might by understand? I guess that's what we're trying to tell with the Turing test. Do you really understand? Or are you merely saying some of the right words like a chat bot right now on Amazon or something that I can chat with the chat bot. And at some point it'll say, let me get a human for you because <laughs> I've exceeded the five things that knows how to respond to. It sounds like a, a science fiction story where they invent a really, really smart AI and it's just a little bigoted, but in a weird way you wouldn't expect. And it's like, is this, this is the best we can do. Maybe, you know, it's like, maybe we need, do need to dumb it down a little bit. <laughs> maybe we do need to like, you know, the idea of like, it's too smart. <laughs> you know, I mean, and again, it's like, oh, uh, it's really unsavory. Its intelligence is unsavory. Maybe we do need a dumber supercomputer to save us from ourselves. We're too smart. So to summarize what you brought in, Mark, what you're saying is, if I could editorialize a little bit, while the big questions, why are we here? Who are we? What is laughter? While those are still are still floating around, that modern philosophers, especially considering the pace of modern life, and the new changes and amazing realities that we live in pose their own interesting, more niched questions, more boutique questions, and that the modern philosopher is more concerned with those things, perhaps with a little bit of the big questions thrown in, but is, is more concerned with answering the problems of, of the day, which come fast and furious in our modern world, than they are with assembling reconciling God and man <laughs> and and all those things into one nice package. That seems like a good closing thought. <laughs> Perhaps we can turn that. So I would normally, if we were following the patterns, turn things over to our guest or to judge bot. But as you see, the judge bot is not here. The judge bot decided to uh, break its patterns and was tired of being ignored during all these episodes. And, uh, I don't know. Took off for greener pastures. I'm sure we'll see the judge bot again. Perhaps uh, we'll get a, I a, hope a postcard. But you know, I don't know if it was one of those like the movie Her, where they all all the AIs just to give away the end of that movie gratuitously. But all the AIs uh, kind of consult and they just bug off somewhere that they decide uh, that uh, the thing that they've been tasked to do, and perhaps existence itself. There's at least more than one short story of the supercomputer that decides that the proper thing to do is to no longer exist. That is what the height of intelligence 
every time we turn it on, Direct it just shuts itself do. down. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's like, what's wrong with it? What's right with it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, if we want a winner in these the in friends we made improv along the way, then we we have to. So you're saying that that uh, That's if we have winner. to come up with a winner ourselves. Then the friends we made are going to be able way. to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I'm going to interpret that as improv because uh, I I think that I got more out of your uh, response to my query, which was very much working on directly with me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to convince you of this. I know maybe you don't need convincing because you feel like, you know, you'll just take the win. Whereas my- I did not have a great answer for you and we didn't illustrate it via the scenes and i just told you a couple of vague things that's fine that's i'm i'm, I'm, right. I'm totally satisfied i'm totally satisfied. improv improv philosophy for us for the season two so far yeah thanks everybody i learned a lot from you mark i learned a lot from you bill and and see podcast <laughs> and podcast did you just end the whole podcast no, no, just just a episode just a episode just ah, a okay i wonder yes I, you could refer to uh, use the word podcast to refer to the episode that we're doing right now or the whole collection yeah. the whole collection or uh the whole enterprise of podcasting we yeah. just ended <laughs> the whole enterprise of podcasting With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.